Ulterior. This is it. This is the end. The end of not only the 50 Top Records of the Year series, but also the end of Season 3 of Ulterior. That's crazy, man. We fucking did it. We fucking made it, y'all. I say we because this really is a collaborative effort. It's not just myself putting out this content. It's not just the people that help me do so, but also you guys out there who, for whatever reason, you listen. You tune into the kid, you hear what he has to say about scene music of all fucking things, and you rock with it. And in turn, I rock with y'all. And this episode is meant to be not only, you know, the conclusion to everything, but then also, in a lot of ways, my love letter to the scene and you guys at large. So, again, thank you. And now we're here. Top 10. The absolute 10 best records that I listen to all year long. And we're going to get into it pretty quickly after the intro plays. So, uh, thank you so much. Thank you for tapping in. And I hope you guys enjoy this conclusion. So very similarly to the episode for the end of the song series, this one is probably going to end up being longer than its predecessors, not only by virtue of, you know, me having more things to say about these records, but then also the song clips will get longer. They previously were roughly 20 seconds per entry. Now they're going to be estimated at 40 seconds. And again, this is just so I can give you guys a greater scope of whatever the album or EP is that I'm about to talk about, if that makes any kind of sense. And yeah, that's really all I wanted to say to preface this finale and the conclusion to season three of Ulterior. So yeah, let's fucking go, brother. Let's fucking end this shit on as big of a high note as we all possibly can. Number 10 is Symptoms of Survival by Dying Wish. Sometimes bands come around who you look at and you're immediately able to recognize that one day they will have a massive impact on the scene. And for myself, Dying Wish has been that for almost their entire tenure, really. I remember hearing Enemies in Red back in 2019 and just being able to tell, like, there's a lot going on here and there's a lot that 
this band has to offer once they figure things out, once they kind of have their sound a bit more crisp and refined and everything is able to come together, like it is going to be very, very wondrous for the scene. We had Fragments of a Better Memory back from 2021. That was their debut full length. I do not remember where it ranked that year in top 50. I believe it was somewhere in the 20 to 11 range. And again, I don't remember exactly, but my point in saying that is that Dying Wish have had this upward trajectory that has been very, very fun to watch and very fulfilling, I believe, for myself and anybody else who, again, has been able to see the promise and the potential always exists within the camp of Dying Wish. I really do believe that Symptoms of Survival has some of the best like transition moments throughout any record this year. The connective threads from the opening title track into Watch My Promise Die into Starved and then into songs like Pray For Me and Path To Your Grave, it is like very methodical. I, at least that's what I would believe it was when putting this record together and deciding, okay, which song goes after which song. The flow is just immaculate and undeniable in my opinion. These opening songs are just so blistering and like full throttle in every way. And there are so many different areas of scene history being translated here. Like, you know, Dying Wish, you know, they, they have like a typical, or not typical, but typically they have their sound rooted in hardcore, but then there's also so many hits of metalcore and deathcore thrown into this record. Like, there is as much wrist meat razor worship as there is kill switch engage worship as there is the black dahlia murder worship every element of influence for dying wishes sound just came together so perfectly and so fluidly for the the flow of symptoms of survival the song paved in sorrow I really do believe, even if that's not my favorite song on the record, it's the one that is going to stand out to any listener the most because of how different it is in its nature and delivery and just how fucking elegant Emma Boaster sounds. I remember when I reviewed Fragments of a Better Memory, something that I had said about that record was that I hope that in the follow-up, there were more songs for Emma to be able to explore her clean vocals because I think her range of cleans is just amongst the best in the scene all around. And we kind of had like a taste of it last year. If any of you guys listened to the song that she was on for uh, Julia Hart, who was a wrestler for AEW, Backtrack is like not really heavy in any way, at least in terms of like what I'm so used to hearing out of Emma. It's just like this very, like almost like a, like a theater sounding song and like a choir, just the way that Emma is able to use her voice to, you know, make these, um, like these emotions come out of you that normally I would say she hadn't beforehand. Um, if you haven't heard that song yet, you know, I would definitely suggest going to listen to it, not just because it's a great song, but also because Julia Hart's a fucking beast. And this was a very long-winded and verbose way of me saying that Paved in Sorrow has a lot of those clean moments on here, and it is as angelic as it is diabolico in its sound. And, you know, I talk about transitions. The way that Paved in Sorrow goes into Tongues of Lead, just one of the coolest transition moments on any record all year. 
By the time you get to the conclusion of Symptoms of Survival, which is the song Lost in the Fall, I feel like you as listener have kind of already, you know, been put through the ringer per se with this record. Like you have, aside from uh, Paved in Sorrow, you haven't really been given that chance to like sit back and breathe and just really be able to process and digest what you heard. Lost in the Fall it doesn't give a fuck about any of that, man. That song is still as just like uh, gung ho as anything else on this record. Although Lost in the Fall again has a lot of those really sick moments where Emma is uh, going about her clean vocals, and she's going about it in a way that it makes so much sense to the overall cadence of Dying Wish. Like these moments do not feel forced at all. They feel so fucking natural to the evolution of these tracks. And Lost in the Fall does an amazing job at just kind of taking the best parts of every song beforehand and mixing it all together in this amalgamation that is so satisfying as a conclusion to not only one of the best albums of the year, but one of the best albums of the last five years and then maybe even the last decade altogether for the scene. Symptoms of Survival was the exact follow-up that I wanted Dying Wish to have this year, and the efforts put here have not gone unnoticed, and I don't want them to go unnoticed at all in the future. I want Dying Wish to be the next big thing in the scene. I want them to, you know, have the same reverence that so many of their contemporaries do because their sound warrants that kind of attention. And if you're not on the train to Dying Wish right now, you need to get your ass the fuck on this bitch. Number 9 is Retrovision by Honey Revenge. When I mentioned Dying Wish just now, what I had said was that I had been able to tell, essentially from their inception, or at least around there, that there was a lot of promise and potential for them, and they had all of the abilities in the world to one day be a massive band and make a difference. I can't say that I viewed Honey Revenge the same way. Not that I didn't like them at all, but I listened to them and I thought... They're a good band, but I really didn't know if I saw a future where I viewed them as one of the best bands in the world. I thought, if anything, the output would be consistent and, you know, they could have good projects and good songs, but best in the world status, I did not know for sure if it would one day belong to Honey Revenge. And then off of the album Retrovision this year, they shut me the fuck up. And I do believe that speaks to why none of us should ever, you know, like typecast a band or put them into a box after an initial first impression because bands can always, at any given time, any moment in their careers, show that they got that dog in them. And Honey Revenge, they had every dog in the fight put into Retrovision, which is, by the way, their debut full length. For a band to have been able to put this kind of effort into a debut, 
that is remarkable and it's something that whenever you know a band does this we should always just take a, a moment to appreciate what they were truly able to achieve not only for themselves but then also everybody out there who has you know believed in honey revenge and has been fighting for them this whole time the skill set to write these insanely catchy pop rhythms is so evident right from the moment you press play on the opening song airhead and the chorus that just like really takes control of the wheels in a lot of ways and shows just uh, again how catchy the rest of the album w will be at that point and then also the range and the versatility of Devin and how incredible of a vocalist she is and how much she shines on not only airhead but every song thereafter the second track is seeing negative disappointment which is one of my favorite songs of the year probably one of my favorite songs of all time i think seeing negative disappointment is one of the greatest songs ever made that kind of like skirts the boundaries of pop punk and pop rock and anything pop adjacent seeing negative is every single thing that i could ask for a band like honey revenge to be um favorite song like these tracks just have so much life and character and personality to them every song here stands out and that's a big factor in what makes a record effective does every song feel like its own entity do they blend together in any way or are they all their own you know unique personas and i feel like that is exactly the kind of uh endeavor that retrovision takes you on and the album took itself on for that matter I didn't give this any attention or love in the 100 song series, but Habitual is another track that really plays to the strengths of Honey Revenge. It is just as catchy and infectious and as much of an earworm as anything else on the album, and it also has one of my favorite lines throughout the entire year in the second chorus. So Habitual, you're a little bitch, you know? Sometimes you just gotta call a little bitch a little bitch, you know? That's how it be. Um, the other thing about the album is that from a lyrical standpoint, it has a lot of genuine and heartfelt moments, even when the words are laced with these very infectious pop rhythms, like I mentioned. Uh, take the chorus on the song Rerun, for example, for that. I've seen this episode before, Deja Vu's so hard to ignore, promise it'll only play once more, everything is a rerun, I wonder if I try again, can I change how the story ends, warning signs like a smoking gun, everything is a rerun. And in the midst of all this, you're just like fucking nodding along, vibing. Maybe you're, you know, moving your hips, you're dancing to some of these tracks. And they're so heartfelt and emotional. And I, I think that is a particular style to Honey Revenge that has been able to make them as much of a standout band this year as I believe that they are. And then so many of the other songs here, you know, they do the same thing. Murphy's Law, Fight or Flight, Distracted, The Closing Track. These are all exceptional songs. These belong on anybody's top 10, 20, 50, 100, whatever the range it is that you wanted to take on this year. Honey Revenge has every right to have as many songs in those lists as they want because Retrovision just put that kind of effort forth for all of us. Every song here stands out. Every song means something. You remove one little bit of this album, like you take out Scapegoat or Worst Apology, you do get a different album. Every song mattered. 
and impacted the runtime of Retrovision. And in that same breath, I would imagine that if you listen to this album, at least one, two, maybe three songs stuck with you. You can't get these melodies out of your head. Any of these hooks, they are living inside of your brain. They are a part of you now. And there is no other way that any of us could have consumed Retrovision this year. Number eight is Shame on Me by Catch Your Breath. To kind of piggyback off of something I just said in that entry for Retrovision, a band having a debut full length make it into a top 10 for myself or anybody for that matter, that shouldn't go unnoticed. That should be applauded and celebrated because that shit is not easy whatsoever. And it wasn't just Honey Revenge that that did it this year for me. Catch Your Breath came out of here, out of the shadows, seemingly, and just obliterated any expectations that I could have had for them. And I feel like by this point, everybody who exists on quote-unquote scene TikTok or alt TikTok, whatever it is that you want to consider it as, everybody on that platform has heard Dial Tone by now. You saw it come up on your For You page, and maybe you went to YouTube or Spotify or whatever your preferred platform is, and you checked out the song And I don't see how any of you guys could have denied the catchiness of that song and and like the it factor. I feel like even if you don't fuck with dial tone, it is so easy to understand just from one listen why that song blew up the way it did. Why that is one of the most played alt metal songs of the year or, you know, alt rock, whatever you want to call it. I always say things like aura it factor, personality, character, like, you know, so many things like that, as in, like, what I ask for songs in the scene to have. Dial Tone might as well have written the fucking handbook on how to have those elements, and that is why, right now, it's sitting at 39 million streams on Dial Tone, or or on Spotify. It is why Catch Your Breath have, as of right now, over a million monthly listeners, and I know You know, sometimes Spotify numbers don't exactly give like a good metric scaling for the success of a band, but for Catch Your Breath, who are still relatively new, yes, those numbers mean something. And you know what else means something? When I saw this band back in April, and the amount of people around me who just came alive and came unglued for Dial Tone the second that song started playing, and being able to recite every word back to the band, it was a small room, small little intimate show on Easter, but the way that the crowd reacted to Dial Tone, brother, this could have been fucking Madison Square Garden. I can't cap. And I think something that makes Shame On Me so easy to get into is that it really does fit into so many different corners of what I would consider to be like some of the more effective elements of modern metalcore. And basically what I mean by that is 
you can take the two opening songs, No Evil and Dying on the Inside, and easily relate them to other acts that might make it accessible for some of you guys to get into Catch Your Breath. No Evil, which is the opener, it reminds me a lot of The House of Wolves by Bring Me the Horizon. And that's not me saying like the song rips off The House of Wolves in any way. I'm just saying that the cadence and the rhythm is kind of familiar, but to the point where Catch Your Breath took those specific things and crafted their own unique song that is able to stand out and that is able to pack that immediate punch that they kind of needed to sell you on the debut full length right away and then dying on the inside there's like this um there's a very methodical approach to the verses and how that translates over to the chorus and i would say that it does remind me of what some bands like bad omens or until i wake would be doing and again familiarity these kinds of sounds and tones are able to immediately get me immersed in this record and then from there it goes into dial tone which you know i i I don't need to talk anymore about dial tone i could write a fucking thesis statement about dial tone and maybe i will one day you know we'll see what happens at any given moment, Catch Your Breath can turn up the intensity on the record or scale it back and just be one of the most easily sing-alongable bands in the scene right now. Uh, Cycles and Deadly are tracks that, you know, they have their moments of bounce, they have their moments of, you know, some glimpses of heaviness, but then overall the song centers back to just the really, you know, amazing choruses that I think Catch Your Breath managed to master on this record. You Should Know Why is one of the slower songs here, and also, in my opinion, one of the best. And I feel like at that point, you kind of have a good understanding of every type of sound and adventure that you can be put through by this album and the band altogether. And I just mentioned uh, You Should Know Why. It's immediately followed by My Confessions, which is so atmospheric. And I think it has some of the best production out of any song that I got to hear all of this year. Uh, Savages. It, it, okay, Savages does feel like a song that, you know, you would hear on modern uh, rock radio if you know what that kind of sounds like. But I don't say that in a, a negative way or demeaning way whatsoever. That song has some real energy to it. And I didn't get to hear this live because the song was now at that time back in April. But I would imagine getting to hear it live now, the room would be so fucking lit for that song. Um, and I can't do this entry without mentioning 21 Gun Salute, which is one of the catchiest songs of the year, one of the best in my opinion, and a song that, had this been released in place of Dial Tone last year, I still think Catch Your Breath would have reached the heights that they have so far, because that song, it's just undeniable in my opinion, and I feel like undeniable is kind of the main crux of what it is I'm trying to say about Shame On Me, because it would have been so easy for this record to, you know, kind of be lost in translation and uh, fall to the wayside per se, but Catch a Breath, they just did not allow that to happen. They took the success of Dial Tone and they capitalized on it in a way that you would hope any band with their kind of viral fame would be able to do. Each song here is just so meaningful and they all tell a story that factors into the overall narrative of Shame On Me. These aren't just singles clumped together. Like This is a real record. This is a real album with a real message to give to all of us. And 
I would hope that any of you guys out there who haven't heard this album yet, you can take the time at some point to go about seeking out that message, you know, on your own terms and really finding what it is about Catch Your Breath that speaks to you because I feel confident in saying that every single person out there, there is something about Catch Your Breath that will lure you into their sound. Number seven is Heavener by Invent Animate. You want to talk about a band maximizing their potential at last? A band who, with every release, was starting to piece it together and figure out what is their sound? What is their placement in the metalcore hierarchy? What is it that they can do that no other band in the genre can? And Invent Animate finally got it together. And I don't say that to disparage Graveview or anything previously from their discography because I liked and enjoyed those records at the time of their releases. But what I'm getting at is every release, more than anything else, showed me that piece by piece, brick by brick, and Van Animate were getting there. And one day there would be a full length release that showed they had figured every part of their character out. And that's what happened with Heavener. You could see it forming from the singles rollout. You could see it throughout the entire album. When you go into the opening song, Absence Persistent, the structure of that track just really allows every cool idea and concept in the camp of Event Animate to be fleshed out in the highest regard possible. Um, I think this is also an immaculate showcase for Marcus Vick, who, again, like the rest of the band, I believe that with every release, Marcus was, you know, finding his way and understanding how to use his talent and range to make the, um, how do I phrase it? To make the effectiveness of Invent Animate, you know, really show through. And I know Marcus just got there with Graveview, but I mean, like, for Graveview and then the uh, the two-song EP back from 2021, The Sun Sleeps As If It Never Was, Marcus was really coming into his own slowly but surely with everybody else. Um, he has some of the best, uh, like, dynamic that you can find between a single person's cleans and screams. Marcus is the perfect voice for this soundtrack of Heavener. I feel like off this record, no matter which side to invent anime they want to really have be shown and displayed to the listener, it all works. You get into a song like Without Whisper, which has some of the most melodic and beautiful moments in this band's entire timeline, and then how that goes right into False Meridian, which is one of the most blistering and thunderous metalcore songs of not only this year, but the last couple years at the very least. 
and just the range and the versatility of Invent Anime is just shining through in so many different areas. Uh, Immolation of Night is another track where that heavy factor to them, it really shines and makes them one of the best metalcore bands in the world today. Like top three, two, if you say Invent Anime is the best metalcore band around, I don't have an argument that says that they're not. Um, I look at the rest of the track list for Invan or uh, for Heavener, and I feel like Invan Animate, they just like, God, man, they, they understood the assignment, like to put it bluntly, they understood what Heavener had to be. I don't want to say that this was like a legacy game for them in any way, but I do believe that had Heavener, you know, kind of been on the same level of Grayview or slightly below that, my overall perception of this band would not be as glowing as it is right now. To kind of go back briefly to what I mentioned about the beauty behind a lot of what Invent Anime does on this record, uh, listen to the intro to Purity Weeps and the faint style of Marcus vocals layered behind these angelic piano notes it is something, you know, heaven-like, not to make a pun to the, the record title, but that's really what Invan Anime achieved in so many ways, in so many areas of this album. The closing song, Elysium, one of the brightest moments of an album that has nothing but bright moments to its name. And had Elysium been released this year, it would have been pretty fucking high in Hunter Top songs. Like, I, I really do believe that. Elysium released late into last year, and it just, like, set the stage so fucking eloquently for Heavener. And from March all the way until now, getting to spend, like, weekly uh, duration points with Heavener that was something really special, and Heavener managed to stick with me, and it was so easy to regard this as one of the best albums of the year. My, I have to clear my throat, but I'll do that in a little bit. Um, and there's a reason why, if you go on Metalcore Twitter right now, you see so many people putting Heavener in their own respective year-end lists and putting songs like Without a Whisper and False Meridian and Immolation of Night in their own rankings for the songs list because these are some of the best songs of the entire year. This is ultimately one of the best albums of the whole year, and Invent Anime really cemented themselves in my own eyes as one of the best in the world, one of the best to do it today. Number six is Void Eternal by Nothing Nowhere. I feel like prior to the beginning of the cycle for this album, any mention of Nothing Nowhere on this show was kind of scarce. And I don't mean that like disparagingly, but what I am getting at is back in 2021, Nothing Nowhere had a record out called uh, Trauma Factory, and it was good. I enjoyed it for what it was, but it didn't really place like 
too high on any list I did this year or that year, whether it be for the records or for songs. And I felt like there was some disconnect between how I looked at that album and how so many others looked at it because that was a highly celebrated release that year and understandably so. But again, for myself, it just kind of felt like it was good, but maybe not incredible. And there wasn't a extraordinary number of standout tracks or moments off of that album. Like I can pretty comfortably say that that's how I felt about Trauma Factory back then. And in the long run, I would still be of that mindset. But Void Eternal is a very, very, very different beast in comparison to anything that Nothing Nowhere had prior. I feel like when some people think of Nothing Nowhere, the sound that might come to mind is rooted in hip-hop. And I feel like Nothing Nowhere, I don't want to say he mastered that realm of exploration for his sound, but maybe he did as much there as he could have, at least when it came to deciding the direction to take uh, the next album in. And what we ended up getting was a record that, to me, feels like a love letter to post-hardcore in so many different ways. And not just because of how each song sounds, but look at some of the feature spots that are on this record. You have Pete Wentz from Fall Out Boy, Buddy Nielsen from Senses Fail, uh, Connie Scarbosa from Sea Space Cowboy, Ali Appleyard from Static Dress, Spencer Chamberlain and Aaron Gillespie from Under Oath. Uh, who am I missing? Who am I missing? Oh yeah, uh, Freddie Dread. He's on a track with uh, Shane Toll from Silverstein. Will Ramos from Lorna Shore is on here too. Genuinely, Bro went out and formed the Avengers of guest feature spots for this record. And you know what? Each one works in their own unique ways. And they all allow different strengths of these respective artists to really shine through. Um, the song that Will Ramos is on, Tragedy... It's very post-hardcore bass and has like some like singable moments on there. And it's not really a track that I would have imagined Will being on. I feel like the song that Connie is on, uh, Psycho Psychiatry, that one felt more like the Will track. Whereas the one that's like more, more uh, post-hardcore bass, Connie in my head would have fit better on that. But when you hear the actual execution of those songs, it makes total sense why those vocals were chosen for those specific songs. Uh, the song that has Freddie Dread and Shane Told on it, Thirst for Violence, just a fucking new metal banger all the way through. Um, I mentioned Misery Syndrome, which features Buddy from Senses Fail on 100 Top Songs last year. That song has this real, like, 2000s post-hardcore feel to it, so it's very apropos that Buddy was on there, and I just love the pacing of that song. Venom is one of the best songs of the year, that's the Under Oath track. Um, just the way that Spencer and Aaron contribute and mesh their voices alongside Nothing Nowhere's genuinely beautiful, genuinely one of the best collaborations I've ever heard in scene music. And like, e even though a lot of this record is built on the guest feature spots, don't take anything away from the songs that have just Nothing Nowhere on there. The opening song, Anxiety, one of the best opening tracks of the entire year, and in totality, it might be one of the best opening songs I've ever heard in my life. That song just gets me amped and in the proper mindset and mood for the rest of Void Eternal. Nothing Nowhere, he didn't really need 
to make an album like this. I feel like it would have been definitely understood had his follow-up to Trauma Factory been a lot more rooted in that kind of a sound for his endeavors. But to make an album like Void Eternal and have it sound as effective and refined as it does, that shows that Nothing Nowhere is a true fucking student of the game. He knew from the heart what goes into crafting post-hardcore music and heavy music in general. Um, these feature spots, like I said, they were so carefully organized and mind-fuckingly weird at the same time. And I say that because, like, when you look at a track list and you can have uh, Will Ramos and Pete Wentz on the same run sheet... That's fucking strange, but you know what? It works. It, it works so fucking well. Um, this is like post-hardcore heaven for somebody like myself who grew up idolizing that style of music. This is everything that I could have asked for it to be. Nothing Nowhere just outdid himself. He over-delivered on this record, and whatever it is he's going to be doing in the future, whether it be you know a return to form, per se, for hip-hop or something that does um, like kind of play to what this album, uh, embodied, whatever the case is, I will be there no matter what. Number five is the noble art of self-destruction by holding absence. Something that I feel like I've kind of been saying about a couple of bands so far on this episode is that a lot of them had to prove that they could be one of the best bands in the world. When it comes to Holding Absence, I think before this year, they had already proven their worth and value in that regard. Um, I've made it clear before that the self-title from 2019, which is their debut, I like songs on there, but overall, I wasn't like overly um, amazed or wowed by the record, at least not the same way that a lot of other people I know were. It wasn't until The Greatest Mistake of My Life from 2021 where it felt like everything had clicked for the band and they just had their sound and identity down to a fucking T. And then you got into The Lost and the Longing, which was the split with Alpha Wolf from last year. And that really just added to the case for Holding Absence to be one of the best bands in the world. That case was fucking cemented in the minds of everybody around Holding Absence off of the noble art of self-destruction. I do believe that this record had one of the best singles rollouts for the entire year, A Crooked Melody, False Dawn, Honeymoon, and Scissors. These are four elite tracks that so many bands out there, they fucking wish that they could write songs of this caliber. And I don't mean that as a diss to them. I mean it as a compliment to Holding Absence. Because to have that kind of a singles rollout, you gotta be a fucking top-notch band to pull that shit off. And that's exactly who Holding Absence are, and that's exactly what they did this year. And amongst those four songs, you had two that really like brought the energy and the aggression for the band. Uh, that was Scissors and False Dawn. 
Honeymoon, which is a ballad-like song for them, and then A Crooked Melody, which I, I feel like it kind of combines all of those elements in a way, and ultimately A Crooked Melody did end up being my favorite song on this record, but this album is just littered with great moment after great moment. I feel like Anybody could make a case for any track here being their favorite. Head Prison Blues has kind of some like anime opening energy to it. It's got that like really like forward motion energy and just like go, go, go the entire time. It's easy to just get lost in that track and to find it to be one of the catchiest of the year and one of the best opening songs of the year and maybe in general like head prison blues might exist at least in my own head as one of the best holding absent songs ever made um you kind of get the singles run through after that with a crooked melody false dawn scissors and honeymoon i also want to say the transition from false dawn to scissors fucking perfect bro fucking excellent whoever put that together whoever spliced that shit up you were cooking, like, for real, for real. And then I think from there, like, the non-single songs, they also play very heavily into what I believe was, like, a post-hardcore direction for the album, per se. It reminds me, in certain moments, and I don't say this because Lucas is about to, uh, you know, technically be a part of this band, but there is a lot of Funeral for a Friend inspiration that I could... What the fuck was that? It's a dump truck, man. Not, like, an ass, but, like a, like, an actual, like, dump truck outside. Do you see what fucking society has done to me where I refer to, like, I said a dump truck and I had to clarify that I wasn't talking about an ass? Whatever. Anyways, um, the non-singles for this record, they really do still play to what I said, like, I believe could be, like, a funeral for a friend influence on... God damn it, dude! A funeral for a friend influence on this album. If none of that picks up in the actual finished audio, I apologize. I'm yelling at a dump truck. Not an ass, a literal dump truck. What the hell, man? Um... Death Nonetheless, Her Wings, and uh, Liminal. Those songs, like I said about uh, Head Prison Blues and Scissors, they just bring the energy. And I would imagine that like, if I were to hear these songs in a live setting, which hopefully I do, I'll be seeing Holding Absence uh, in a month's time, um, this is going to go over really well with, with a live audience. And these tracks are going to just you know make the room feel alive and all that sort of shit. Uh, Liminal is another moment where things are like really scaled back and these songs, e even if I prefer the, you know, slightly heavier tones to Holding Absence, when they have songs like in this kind of a slow nature, everything about them, like every perfect element really shines through. And I feel like these are the moments where you really get a perfect glimpse and like a microscopic look at how talented Lucas really is and just the range and the ability that he really has. The closing song of this record is The Angel in the Marble, which is one of the best closing songs that you will find on any record, not just from this year, but from any year in the history of history. That song just hits, and it is one of the most emotionally weighing songs from Holding Absence, and I feel like given what kind of a band this is, and you look through their entire discography, me saying this is one of the most emotionally weighing songs by them... That should mean something. The Angel in the Marble, it has a real shot at bringing any single one of you to tears, even if you have never heard Holding Absence before this album. The Angel in the Marble is perfect. Everything about the album is perfect. I feel like this is such a, a layup of a record for this band. And again, to me, their legacy was already kind of cemented after The Greatest Mistake of My Life. It is only elevated now off of The Noble Art of Self-Destruction. And if this is your record of the year... 
I, I have no argument against that. I totally get it. I understand it. And you should have it there. So now we get into the top four for the list. And I want to make note of this before I proceed. Number one was cemented in its spot when this list was starting to take shape. Like that never changed. Records four, three, and two, they all switch places amongst each other. These are three albums that were very, very difficult for me to rank over one another just because of what they mean to me and how well I believe they were executed. And this is ultimately what I have decided when it comes to ordering them. So let's let's go ahead now and, you know, hopefully make sure that my head and my heart are aligned properly for this. Number four is Truth Decay by You Me at Six. So I believe that maybe just by virtue of Yumi at 6 being the oldest band with a record in the top 10, the trajectory of themselves has been one of great triumph and very disappointing lows. And what I mean by that is Yumi at 6 have taken all of us on a journey and some of that journey is very frustrating um so when ulterior started back at the beginning of 2021 uh it was meant to be a website with written reviews not a podcast or anything like what it has turned into and one of the first records that i wrote a review for was sucker punch it was their 2021 album. It came out in January of that year. And I had hopes for it because I thought the band did a really great job with the album Six from 2018. And I always hope for the best for Yumi at Six because they genuinely have been like an important band to me from my years as a teenager all the way until now. And what I got out of Sucker Punch was some fucking dog water. I, I'm not even going to like try and put a positive spin on it. I think that album sucks. It's pretty bad. Um, nothing about that record excited me. Um, if anything, it, it made me believe like, you know what? This band is seven records in and they just put out some fucking cheeks. Maybe it's over. Maybe... The best years of Yumi at Six have come and gone. And maybe there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I got Sinners Never Sleep, Cavalier Youth, Six. Like, I have these albums as a part of me forever. And so maybe, in theory, the band being, in my eyes, done in terms of being able to deliver quality material, that wasn't the end of the world at all. 
And then last year, the band signed to Rise Records and they put out the song Deep Cuts, which was the lead single for Truth Decay. And I was floored. Let's put it that way. My voice is going out right now. I got to get through this. I really don't give a shit. Um, Deep Cuts became like almost immediately one of the coolest things I had ever heard out of Yumi at Six. And for me to have been able to say that in 2022, I took that as a victory for the band. Uh, I, I felt reinvigorated. I felt like, okay, they have something here. Like maybe at the end of the day, the full record wasn't going to, you know, meet those standards. But at the very least, there's hope. There is promise. It's not over. And then you get No Future, Yeah Right, featuring Ro Reynolds from Enter Shikari. Mixed Emotions, Heartless, My Dopamine. This singles rollout did a phenomenal job at really painting the picture of this album that you, me at six, were almost destined to write, in my opinion. These songs have heart. They have character. They have personality. They have reasons to exist. Everything about this singles rollout just spoke to me. Uh, My Dopamine was a song that came out back in January, and I look at that song and I just think, man, this is fucking adorable. This song is maybe one of the best love songs I've ever heard in my life. Uh, The the sappy nature of it and all that sort of shit, I I fuck with this heavily. I, I think My Dopamine was the perfect way to kind of cap off that singles rollout. Um, Or as far as singles rollout, like leading up to, or in the months leading up to the record, I should say. Um, And then once I look at the rest of Truth Decay, it was an experience to get through. Um, You got God Bless the 90s Kids, which I've heard some, you know, gripes with in terms of lyricism. And sure, maybe... There's nothing like super poetic about God Bless Night's Kid, but you know what there is about that song? Fucking aura, man. That song is catchy as hell. I think it fits right into the concepts and the themes and the ideas explored on Truth Decay. Um, I look at some of the songs later on, like Breakdown, which feels very um, like angsty in a way. And maybe that's kind of a weird emotion for Yumi at six to have, you know, at, at this stage of their careers and at this age of their lives. But I, I listen to Breakdown and I can't help but just smile throughout it, man. I'm smiling right now. Like Yumi at six, they really put out the best album of their careers, in my opinion, in 2023. Like how the fuck does that happen? Um, Something else I want to say about this record before I proceed is I, I look at the the day that it came out, February 10th. This album shared a release day with The Jaws of Life by Pierce Savelle and This Is Why by Paramore. Two of my favorite bands of all time, two bands who in all-time rankings, I would put them ahead of You, Me at Six. And guess what? Those two albums are not on this list. But Yumi at 6 is. It's not only in top 50, it's top 4. I don't understand how that happens. Like, I'm generally flabbergasted that Yumi at 6 managed to put out a record this year that I am this in love with and this head over heels with. But when you have songs on here like Traumatic Iconic, Ultra Violence, A Smile to Make You Weaker at the Knees, Who Needs Revenge When I've Got Ellen Ray, there's no denying what this album was able to do for me. 
I found faith in Yumi at six again. Are they going to put out another album of this quality, you know, in two, three years? I don't know. But the answer now is I don't know. Whereas, you know, off of Sucker Punch, I was saying it's done. It's curtains. Finito. No, bitch, it's not. There's life to this band. There is a pulse. There's not just a pulse, man. There is a fucking being that is soaring into the sky right now, up to the heavens, because Yumi at Six made that spirit so ascendant. I ultimately don't think it makes sense for this album to be as good as it is, and it's one of the biggest mysteries of this year for myself, coming out of 2023 for the scene. But... At the end of the day, if I just shut the fuck up and don't try to question it, I can embrace it. And I can embrace that Yumi at 6 put out my favorite album they've ever done and overall, one of the best albums I've ever heard in my life. Number 3 is A Song You Can't Feel Anymore by Harm. So let's backtrack a little bit right quick. Let me tell you guys a story about Harm and how I found them and a reason why this album meant so much to me from my first listen through and in a way that doesn't even really have anything to do with the songs here or the way the record sounds. Um, I'm trying to figure out how personal I want to get with this. You know what, for for me to really do this, I have to kind of go all the way, so um, I- I'm going to speak about some personal matters right quick. Um, If that's something that you don't care for, firstly, I don't blame you, and then secondly, I apologize for taking up time of this segment with this explanation, but um, back in February of 2020, um, so this is pre-pandemic, like minutes before pandemic, basically, Um, I was going through it. Uh, I was in my final semester of college and I just felt like there was a lot really weighing on me and a lot that I didn't know how to express. Um, there was a potential relationship, I guess you can call it, that, uh, was kind of, uh, it was ripped away from me, I guess, but you know, maybe that's dramatic. Maybe it wasn't, but, uh, let's just talk in the context of that time. It was ripped away from me. Um, that same time, uh, my parents separated and that was very difficult to deal with, way more difficult than I thought it would be. And so around this time, something that I enjoyed doing was just going to Starbucks in the afternoon and then into the night and just like kind of wasting away time there, you know, just being to myself, working on whatever I needed to work on, listen to some music. Like that was my escape. That was my haven in a lot of ways at that time. And there was one particular Saturday there, um, 
it would have had to have been February 8th uh, of 2020, just by doing like the the date math in my head, if that makes any sense. Um, and I remember sitting down at a window and looking out and just watching, you know, the sunset. And something else that I would do with my time was uh, I would just like, the same thing I do it now. I, I would just like uh, go on scavenger hunts throughout the internet to try to find any new artist, new song, just anything new from the scene. Like even back then, that is something that I was very much so um, like integrated into. And I-, I forgot exactly where I found it, but I came across a song, Atlanta 1985 by Harm. And I just, I, I was so captivated by it. I-, I immediately fell for that song in every way that you can fall for a piece of music. And I, I I still listen to that song to this day, and I can like put myself in that chair in Starbucks, right by that window, with that sunset, with those very um, like hurting emotions inside of me. But for whatever reason, I, I didn't exactly like stay tapped in for harm after that. I, I kind of fell off, and, and that's a hundred percent my fault. You know, I, I should have kept up with them throughout the years. Um, but that was my story of like how I initially found harm. And then this past June, I was not intending to review anything beyond like Honey Revenge and then some other albums that came out that week. Uh, I think Trophy Eyes was that same week as well. Um, but I saw the artwork for a song you can't feel anymore. And this might sound like a lie to you guys, but I saw that artwork and the first thing I thought of was that scenery that I just painted for you guys with me sitting in a Starbucks by a window with the sunset because this record, uh, the artwork for it shows a window to a house and there's fire on the inside. And I thought that without realizing who this band was. Like that, that memory just came to me and I didn't realize oh, it's the band that made Atlanta 1985. I remember listening to the album and starting it off with uh, the intro song, When I Say It Out Loud, It All Falls Apart, which is fucking phenomenal, by the way. Like, the the way that that song really uh, paces itself and, like, it never really uh, bursts into the kind of post-hardcore that the rest of the record does, but, like, you still get a good grasp of this band through that song and you get an even better grasp of the talent and the abilities by Billy on vocals. Um, once I got to song number three, which is all my life, my heart has yearned for a thing I cannot name. That's when it hit me. This is that band. And I looked at the saved songs on my Spotify and there was Atlanta 1985. And in that moment, I I felt like chills on my body, not to be like hyperbolic, but I I felt like there was this out of body experience happening uh, uh, in my, my core because I could not believe that after all of these years, this band found me. I didn't find them. They found me. You know, after everything that I had been through since hearing Atlanta in 1985, now I have a full album in my possession from them. And not just that, a full album that I can review for social media, that I can review on the podcast, that I can gas up and try and, you know, share with as many of you guys as who are willing to listen to me. That was invigoration. That was true motivation 
to get through the rest of the album and just gather my thoughts. And I was just blown away by everything that this album had to offer to me. Take away all of the emotional ties that I've already mentioned about Harm, the album in and of itself is fucking perfect. I just mentioned the song All My Life. I have repeated that chorus more times than I've played some full songs that I loved from this year. It has a a fucking stranglehold on me. I cannot get enough of that song, the progression of it, just everything about it. And that song came out last year. Had I known about that song last year, it would have been a top five song in 100 top songs that year. And then it's followed up with Let's Take Back What's Dear to You, which has more of that aggression and uh, emotion and everything that comes in between for harm and their delivery and cadence on every sector of their outfit, whether it's vocals, instrumentation, production, everything is just suited so well for this band. You have the song, I Fear Only That My Rage Will Fade Over Time, which has like this very ominous and brooding feeling to it. It takes what you've already been hearing by harm at that point and slows it down so effectively. It is such a well-crafted song. I wish you could see yourself the way the rest of the world does was not only one of my favorite songs of the year, but it has probably overall my favorite line of the entire year in the chorus. They say that the mirror tells the truth while it's lying to my face like it's got nothing to prove. That hit me in my heart, guys. That fucking line just engulfed my brain. Um, You have the song, uh, but then there's a pause, which is like a... It's like the most pop-inspired song on the record, but even saying pop-inspired feels like I'm doing a disservice to how the song actually sounds. It is still something that was able to really move me, and I could not get enough of it. Um, The final song, This World is Merciless, and it's also very beautiful. Not only is that a phenomenal song and one of the best closers of the year, the title is taken from a quote from the Attack on Titan character Mikasa Ackerman, who I named my cat Mikasa after, who the... Uh, The first place award for this entire list is dedicated to in part, and that was able to establish this very personal connection beyond everything I've already been saying from myself to this record and myself to harm altogether. I couldn't put this album down. I have not been able to. I go back to a song you can't feel anymore every couple of days. I, at the very least, listen to All My Life, and I wish you could see yourself, like, daily. These songs have impacted me, man. They have made a difference. They have truly, like, shaped me, and overall, like, that's that's fucking music, man. Like, that is what music was put onto this planet for us to be able to perceive as. Music is nothing without the emotion and the type of connection that you as a listener can make to a song or an album. A song you can't feel anymore, it fucking made me feel. Like, to make a pun to the the title of it. A song you can't feel anymore wrapped itself around my head and my heart and it was warmth. It comforted me. And I wish, I fucking wish, 
it could have been number one. Out of every record in this top 50, this was the one that I wanted to be number one the most because it deserved it. There are years past where this would have been number one. But it's number three because two and one just... Fuck, man. Music is fucking sick, isn't it? Like, music can really be one of the most beautiful things in the world when you allow it to be that. And all of all of this is a big testament to why I feel as strongly about this stuff as I do. Um, if you haven't checked out a song you can't feel anymore, please, please do so. If, like, Under Oath-inspired post-hardcore is anything that you could be into, please, please give this some streams. This album is phenomenal and perfect and a masterpiece and more than deserving of anybody's record of the year choice. Number two, the runner-up for the third annual Mikasa and Historia Award for Ulterior is The Fear of Fear by Spirit Box. Is my voice going to hold up for the rest of the episode? I don't know, man. I don't know, brother. We'll find out together. Um, Yeah, Spirit Box. This is their second time being the runner-up for this award. I just realized that. Um, But it takes nothing away from, you know, the magnitude of what Spirit Box have been able to achieve and what they mean to not just myself, but... I would imagine a lot of you guys listening right now and so many more people out there in the greater scope of the scene audience. And it's fucking crazy to think that they've been able to do all of this with still a relatively small discography. Um, You know, they had the self-titled EP and then Singles Collection, uh, Eternal Blue, and then Rotoscope, which is just a three-song EP, so... They're really not that deep when it comes to their catalog, at least in terms of quantity, but quality-wise. They have surpassed a large portion of bands who myself and others would probably consider to be some of the all-time greats. And in turn, I feel comfortable already saying that Spirit Box is one of the greatest bands the scene has ever had. And... I look at the fear of fear, and to me, it would be very hard to argue against the effectiveness of Spirit Box, and then also the work put into this record by them, because every song here had a music video or a visualizer attached to it, and that allowed every song here to become a lot more personable and a lot more, um, like, 
easy to understand the direction of, you know, because I feel like when you have a, a full length or not even a full length, but let's say an EP, a six song EP, like the fear fear, and you put out videos for two or three songs, that's great. But that leaves three or four songs left over that, you know, the audience kind of has to in some ways, figure out the narrative on their own and understand on their own accord how that song fits into that EP. But the fear of fear, it quite literally paints the visual for you for each song. And that helped make this EP a lot more effective by bridging that gap between listener imagination and artist effort. I really, really admired the type of journey that we were all taken on with the singles rollout of The Void, Jaded, and Celador. And what I mean by that is each of those three songs became progressively heavier as it went on. You had The Void, which was kind of a safe play of a song. My favorite on the EP nonetheless, but still a safe play of a song that, you know, it's so easy to imagine this song having been played in arenas the way that it, it was. Um, Jaded. Grammy Award nominated Jaded, bro. Um, this song kind of having that balance between the softer and the heavier ends of Spirit Box, and then it all finally bleeds into Cellar Door, which is one of the heaviest songs that this band has ever written, and to kind of factor into what I was mentioning about the videos and the visualizers, you can see the juxtaposition immediately off of Jaded and Cellar Door, because Jaded has this very, like, bright spirit to its video with all of these different mirrors and just the way that light reflects off of said mirrors. And then in Cellar Door, the video is very dark and you see the band playing in these primarily like isolated, uh, not well illuminated areas. And I think that speaks so fucking well to the way that the songs sound. Like the videos look the way the songs sound. I look at a song like Too Close, Too Late, which is very emotional, very slow in, in terms of you know, comparing it to the rest of Spirit Box's discography, and the video has a monochromatic finish to its filtering, which is fucking outstanding, and it matches the energy and the atmosphere of that track so perfectly. Um, Angel Eyes, another one that's kind of like dark in um, the video style, because it's a heavy song, it is a pissed off song, and you get that, um, you get that relationship right away between video and song. Ultraviolet. My favorite closing song of the year is Ultraviolet. I think it is one of the most emotional journeys that Spirit Box has ever taken anybody on. The video for it has Courtney in like this dystopian setting and her dress has like a, I don't, I don't know the terminology for it. It's very reflective and shiny. She looks like a disco ball. It fucking rules, dude. Um, and just the, the calamity that is happening around her. And it's as if she doesn't have a care for any of that going on because she is there with her reflective dress in her own world. After we have all been put through the journey, that is the fear of fear and getting to intake this side of spirit box that I will always love being able to watch them explore spirit box. Like I said, they truly have, in my eyes, cemented themselves as one of the greatest bands of all time. I think The Fear of Fear has cemented itself as one of the greatest EPs of all time. And it, it was something that, like, even though it's only been out for, like, you know, almost two months now, 
In that time, I have spent some minutes every single day with this EP because it will not leave me and I don't want to leave the fear of fear in that same vein. This EP means something to me. It is the heartbeat to my music intake for the last two months. It is everything to me. The fear of fear, like I said, one of the greatest EPs of all time, my number one favorite EP of the year. But it can't be the record of the year, no matter how much I would have liked for it to have been, because number one just takes everything that I've said about every record so far, and it amplifies it, and it also makes a case for something I said earlier about why you should never ever write off a band, no matter how you feel about any of their early releases. Number one. My record of the year for 2023 and the winner of the third annual Mikasa and Historia Award for Ulterior is Take Me Back to Eden by Sleep Token. I sound angry right now, but I'm not, guys. I promise. I'm just fired up because this fucking happened and we finally got here. And okay, let's let's talk for a second about Sleep Token and what this band has meant to be meant to me before this year. Because you know what they meant to me before 2023? Nothing. I can say it now, I didn't give a single flying fucking shitting fuck about this band before this year. I lied to you guys on the review for This Place Will Become Your Tomb back in 2021. I said it was good. I didn't think it was good, man. That album kind of sucks. And so does Sundowning. I truly don't give a shit about those albums. I think they have some great songs on it. Bloodsport, Alkaline, but at large, they it's just not for me. Like, those records just didn't do anything to like spark any kind of interest or uh magic within my uh my outlook on sleep token so you know coming into this year like yeah there was the possibility of there being a new sleep token album because they were on the uh every other year cycle at that point but you know if you ask me this time last year like on this exact date a year ago what i believed about new sleep token i would have said I don't give a shit, man. Like, let them do what they want to do. Let them do their little worship ritual shit. I don't, I don't care about any of it. And then the singles rollout happened. And I, I'll say this, like, no hesitation whatsoever in my voice or my delivery. Take Me Back to Eden had the greatest singles rollout in the history of the scene. Chokehold, The Summoning, Granite, Aquaregia, Vor, Do You Wish That You Love Me. No song here sounds the same as each other. Every song has its own identity, its own persona. I, I You know, I, I said before, I ask for songs to be able to do that. I like it when I'm able to really distinguish a song from another because of some identifiable factor. And these singles had identifiable factors to the fucking depths of the earth. 
I remember the moment I first heard the summoning, not even the outro, but just the song itself. And, you know, understanding that I was more than likely going to have to review the eventual album by them for this show. And I was like, you know, yeah, sure, whatever. I'll review it. Let me, let me go ahead and listen to the summoning so I can put it in the reviews for the week. And there was just something about it right away. Um, the production on it, like the fucking aggression and the power that the snare has. Um, the way that Vessel brings his voice in to that song and the, the melodies that he is carrying, the exact lyrics that he is reciting to all of us and doing so in a way that I feel like this was the best he had ever sounded up to that point. And just having that real, like, key element to his voice that you can't identify with another vocalist. It is all one, you know, to himself. And again, the actual lyrics that, you know, were, be- were, were, uh, we were hearing at that point. I've got a river running right into you. I've got a blood trail red in the blue. Something you say or something you do. A taste of the divine. And, and when he's giving those lines, it does feel like he is kind of holding himself back. He's not allowing his vocal cords to just reach the heights that, you know, at that point, so many of Sleep Token fans knew he could. And then it feels like in the chorus, everything comes to life. And at that point, I'm like, okay, this is actually pretty cool. And then it goes into that first breakdown. And I couldn't believe a fucking thing I was hearing. The second chorus after that, which expands on the first one, again, phenomenal a a fucking stellar section of music you kind of go into another little bit of a breakdown and then there is this like interlude section that doesn't really make any sense at first and then you kind of get like these piano notes coming in and at that point i'm like oh okay what's happening here and then that fucking horny ass outro comes on and it was like nothing i'd ever heard before from sleep token or any other band and that was enough to grip me. That was enough to get me to listen to Chokehold. And Chokehold had a very similar effect on me. And then a week later, Granite, Ocarisia, these songs being able to, you know, kind of show me more layers of Sleep Token, way, way, way more layers than I had been exposed to beforehand off of Sundowning and This Swift to Become a Tomb. And Ocarisia and Granite, these songs really showed me like, man... There is so much happening here. More than my little shitty brain can probably comprehend, but... Whatever is happening here, I'm actually excited. And I knew from that moment in January, I am actually, like, really, 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 really anticipating Take Me Back to Eden. And I had no idea that was going to happen. You throw in the heaviness of Vor and the beautiful nature of Do You Wish That You Love Me, and you have, uh, uh, like I said earlier, the greatest singles rollout I have ever seen in my life. And at the same time, we all could see... The numbers growing day by day for Sleep Token. The band had, at that point, amassed, I think, like, 3 million monthly listeners on Spotify. And maybe that's, like, a a stretch. I don't remember what the number really was. But when you look at the actual songs for Sleep Token, the summoning right now is at 88.6 million. And you look at, like, what they had at the top beforehand, Alkaline, 38.2 million. In one year, the summoning garnered 50 million more streams than Alkaline. 
And again, I know that uh, Spotify numbers are not always accurate measurements of success, but when you see a rise as rapid as sleep tokens, yeah, the numbers mean something. When I was getting through the rest of the album, so full disclosure, and I've said this before in some other episodes, um, my favorite album of all time is Amo by Bring Me the Horizon, and the first time I ever heard that album, I turned off all of the lights, sat down in the dark, and I listened to the album, and I had with me a mango-flavored Gatorade. I did that for this record. I genuinely remember doing that for Take Me Back to Eden, not because I figured it was going to be record of the year, but because I just thought, like, this is a moment in time that I'm probably going to remember for the rest of my life. Whether it's number one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight in the year-end rankings, it doesn't matter. I need to take in this moment right now the way that I want to and the way that I am familiar with for records that are kind of life-altering. And this is going to sound so stupid, but I've already made myself sound stupid so many times in the series and the show overall. I really don't give a shit. Um, I was listening to Ascensionism, and there is a point right before the song really like uh, explodes into a wall of sound where Vessel just very quietly whispers to you, Diamonds in the Trees, pentagrams in the night sky and then when the rest of the band came in i like i i fucking i was gulping my uh, mango gatorade i stopped mid gulp to hear this shit and i put the little fucking juice down and i was just like i i think i just sat there with my eyes just wide open not at all believing anything that i was hearing not at all believing that sleep token a band i historically just you know put to the side and didn't give a shit about was able to move me the way that it was moving me in that moment on taking back to eden um the song are you really okay has like such a really beautiful acoustic guitar melody going all throughout it and then at the end of the song, when it kind of slows down again, you just hear Vessel like pouring his heart out and just telling the listener, please don't hurt yourself again. And it's one of the coolest moments on this album. And it's an album where I feel like if I listen to this, you know, 20 times in a row and you ask me actually each time, hey, what was the coolest moment? I'm going to give you 20 different answers. I love the hip hop inspired beat that you hear sometimes in the apparition. I love how Rain is a short song and it still packs the same level of punch as songs like Chokehold and The Summoning. I love the, the key change that you hear in the title track and then how that transitions into maybe the heaviest sounding portion of the entire album. Euclid is the perfect closing song. It feels like the heavens opening up and Vessel is right there ready to greet you and just like pull you into, you know, another one of Sleep Token's rituals. And I, I left this album the first time after hearing it just being so floored and amazed by it. And like I said earlier, and, and you know, I reiterated so many times on this entry, I didn't care about Sleep Token before this year. You know, like I said, some songs here and there, cool, sure. But at large, I didn't understand it. I didn't get why so many people were so fascinated by this band. Aesthetically, always been tremendous. Musically and sonically, that is where I was disconnected from them, but now I am not disconnected. I am connected from heart to heart for this band because of this album. And I talked about this a little bit in the songs series, so uh, please go check that out uh, so I don't have to, you know, repeat every word from there. But basically, 
I have never seen this happen before for a band in my, you know, little corner of the universe. Never before had a band managed to change my entire opinion on them because of one song, which was the summoning and then at large one album because of Take Me Back to Eden. And, you know, by this point, you guys have already seen on YouTube, Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, whatever the fuck, you've seen so many people praise this album and gas it up and call it, you know, their favorite album of the year or maybe their second or third favorite. But whatever the case is, you have seen this album be praised to the fucking depths of the earth by this point. But there was a reason for that. Because... It genuinely, truly is remarkable. It is one of the best, like, um, one of the most complete masterpieces I've ever seen in music. It is not only my favorite album of this year, it is one of my favorite albums of all time. I will never forget where I was when I first heard The Summoning, or Akarisha, or The Apparition, or Euclid. These moments are forever a part of me. They are embedded into my brain. And this album is genuinely something that one day in the future, if I am to ever have kids of my own, they will know about this album. I will tell them about Take Me Back to Eden, and I would hope that, you know, they reach a point in their lives where they're able to listen to this album on their own and appreciate it the way that I and millions of others have right now. So much of this year, I feel, at least for myself, is attached to this record. And when I think back on 2023 in the future, Take Me Back to Eden will be amongst the first things I think of, if not the first. This album is 2023 incarnated and that's it that was everything um that was the series and that was the season you guys we did it we made it um if you listened to all of this series Thank you so much. Like, I, I genuinely, really, truly fucking appreciate it. If you listen to all of the song series, I appreciate that as well. If you listen to even, like, fucking five seconds of any of this stuff that I've been doing, I appreciate that as well. I I owe so much to you guys because, you know, whatever is to happen in the future for this platform, it doesn't happen without y'all. And in that same breath, none of this happens or will happen in the future without these amazing bands that I've been able to talk about. Not just the ones on this episode, but the ones in every prior episode of the season. Nothing that I'm saying means anything without these bands putting forth the effort and the time that they do. So, you know, whatever your favorite album of the year is, I I, I want you guys to go listen to that as soon as you can. Whatever your favorite song was, go listen to that. I just want you guys to be appreciative of whatever it was this year in music that meant something to you that you keep in your heart you know the way that i just talked about taking back to eden if you want to talk about a different album like or if you feel that same way for a different album go listen to it man like let music do what it's meant to do for you and you know that's um Music, music is special, guys. Uh, you know, you probably hear that like time and time again. So maybe me saying it now doesn't mean shit, but music is magical. Music is healing. Music is love. Music can be one of the most beautiful things in the world. And I think, you know, all of you guys being here right now, you all understand that. So, uh, 
beyond anything else, let's just, you know, keep that mindset and keep that energy going into 2024. Um, there's a lot that I have planned for 2024. There's a lot of uh, stuff that I would like to achieve with this show. And I'm pretty excited for it. Like, I really feel like, you know, I'm ready to make Ulterior something more recognizable. I'm ready to make that jump and do everything that I can to get this platform out there and to more eyes and ears, you know, from both bands and uh, fans of music alike. This is going to be a journey. And if you're with me on this for the ride, then... Let's go. There are some kids playing outside. I don't know if y'all can hear them. Uh, if you do, don't mind them. If you uh, if you don't hear them, then, you know, whatever. Um, Yeah. That's everything now. Uh, I'm tired, man. I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go lie down. Uh, I, need, I need to spend some time with my cats. Thank you for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this year. And as always, They are really fucking loud outside. As always, for the love of the game, let's make a scene. I'll see you guys in 2024.